this is when the monster in me was probably created, is the DP on that film said something to us at one point about how every single shot has to have movement. The camera must be moving in some way. And I sat there and I thought about it and I was running through the list of movies and shows in my brain. I took a risk and I was like, that's not true. And now I know that that term is called locked off. You can have shots locked off, right? And people might be moving, but even still look at Wes Anderson, you might have totally rigid talent in a locked off frame. I jumped in and it made me think, oh, maybe I have an eye for this. Oh, and the elevator shot. That shot was my idea and I fucking love that shot. That's when the monster was created because then anytime you wouldn't accept my idea, I'd be like, well, no, remember the elevator shot? That was a good one. I know what I'm talking about. Is that much of a, is that, that's not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force, and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post 9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian. And that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 79 features Andrea Busilla, a former college golfer at Ole Miss and teacher and director of operations turned filmmaker. She most recently directed and executive produced Shattered Glass, a WNBPA story from Alka Media, Tubi, and Puma. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. You have white fuzz on your right shoulder. That's your left. Yeah, there you go. Nope. Yep. You see it? Yeah. Well. Uh -uh. Down. It's crumbs. What are you talking about? Okay, cool. Wow. What I bet all your guests don't do that. Yeah, it's great. I was about to say it's a great, that's a great segue into into a podcast recording with your wife. Uh, Good morning, Andrea Busilla. Welcome to Veteran Made. Good morning, love. Uh, excited to have you back. I don't know if anybody's ever going to hear the first episode that we ran uh, just as a trial run, which we can talk about a little bit uh, later as we get into your film. Um, but for the audience who might not know exactly who you are, um, though you have been referenced often on the show, can you please ground us um, with a little bit of your athletic and educational background, and then we'll we'll jump into some transition things from there. Yeah. Um I'm so excited that we're doing this. I know that we both posted on LinkedIn a few weeks ago. Um, and just to remind us both what one thing before I actually answer your question in, in typical wife form, um, I'm going to answer my own, say my own thing first, which is I love how we have uh, heavy and deep conversations and real conversations. So I'm excited to do that for your audience. Um, so my background, um, I grew up playing sort of every sport big sports family. Um, and then, you know, you and I ended up living in the same town in middle school and high school, big golf town. So I got into golf, um, fell in love with that sport and then got a scholarship to play at Ole Miss. Um, and I loved it down there. It was obviously very different, um, than the Midwest and then the North in any, in any way, but the SEC was really cool and competitive. And I met some of my best friends there. I would say I was a mediocre SEC golfer, at best, um, and might even be a better player now, which you and I talk about a lot. Um, and we can even get into like the mental reasons why that is, but yep, I had, I, I led her for four years down there. And then, um, I got my master's in education. There's a program called Mississippi teacher Corps, which is similar to TFA. In fact, the two founders of TFA and, and MTC started together and then had, you know, differences and split off, um, MTC focus only on Mississippi. So I taught 
in North Mississippi for two years while getting my master's uh, just south of Memphis in a town called Vihalia. Still very, you know, connected with a lot of those kids who are, you know, married with kids now. They're not kids anymore. Um, and then always sort of knew I wanted to live in New York City. Um, it had been a dream since my, you know, Aunt Diane and Grandma Patty took me there when I was 16. And a couple of my other friends from Ole Miss had the same dream. So we all moved to New York City around the same time in 2012. Um, a good friend of ours, Todd Sutler, hooked me up with a job at Community Roots Charter School. I switched out of the classroom into operations just to sort of get a job that could pay my New York City rent. Um, ended up being at that school for seven years. I bounced between operations and teaching the whole time, um, which I think is probably something relevant to your to your audience, right? Sort of like taking your time to find what you love, but is I, I loved the community there. So um, I stayed for the better part of a decade. And let me know if you mean to stop there before we get into the film stuff or if that's enough background. Yeah, I think it's a good background. There's a couple, a couple of things I want to pull some threads on. I'm actually taking some notes um, here just to just to go. So um, I'd like to talk a little bit about <clears throat> it. It's it's actually probably more common than people realize, which is why I want to talk about it. But there is there is this kind of and, and less so now because of the way the sport is growing and, and, and the avenues that it's growing. But like you didn't grow up as like like, uh, you know, a, a, a crusty upper, uh, upper crust, like country club, uh, tennis and golf player. And like, that's all, like, it was very blue collar. Um, and if you're open to it, I'd love to hear just kind of a little bit about, um, you know, like your stepdad was in the golf business, which is why you were able to kind of get into it. And you, you kind of came to the game through love, but then you went to college and, and played and kind of, um, you know, like, like really worked your way into it. Um, and you've talked a little bit about that, obviously, privately before. But can you talk a little bit about about just golf as a sport and how you initially got into it and and it taking you to Ole Miss? Yeah, um, I'm actually really glad you asked that. So my stepdad um, was in the business, which gave me a lot of access. Right, like we lived at a very fancy country club around um, Columbus in Dublin, but you know, got the staff rates. Um, so all these kids that I was playing with all the time, their families had shelled out the, you know, crazy amounts of money to belong there. But I was just, you know, the, the director of golf, I forget actually what his title was now, but you know, one of the big wigs kids who had driving range access and would, you know, go off at twilight and play as many holes as she could before it got dark kind of situation. Um, and then my dad was a scratch golfer. Um, and I would say that my dad's side of the family is what got me into sports period. Um, my mother is a very brilliant, tough, smart woman, but she is very much a girly girl. Um, my dad's side, you know, he's the one who would buy me like black high top basketball sneakers when I was a kid. Um, so we grew up playing everything. Um, softball was my first love, still might be. Um, and then he, he would take me to the golf course and I would watch him play. And I mostly learned by watching his swing, hearing how he approached the game. Um, we're very similar mentally. So he was a big help there. Um, and then I think because I didn't really take lessons because I just, I was one of those kids who just loved being at the golf course. Um, my friends and I would spend hours on the driving range trying to hit trick shots and flop shots and, you know, have long distance putting comp comp competitions, which is not of practical use necessarily. Though I just think like the familiarity with that I got with the golf club in my hand and the familiarity and comfort I felt being around golf courses ended up 
taking me where I where I went, which was a you know a Division One scholarship. Um, but I didn't play in all the tournaments, all the junior tournaments. That's thousands and thousands of dollars. You have to travel the country. I got picked up out of one tournament, which was actually in the state of Ohio. My assistant coach Kelly Anders um, was there to see somebody else. And my one strength, even though I'm only five foot five, my strength was always that I hit the ball really far. My short game is dog shit, um, but I could hit the ball really far. So she saw me hit a drive and stopped and ended up following me for the rest of the round and sort of the rest is history, right? I, they invited me on an official visit. Um, I had other ones scheduled, but Ole Miss happened to be, you know, the only way it fit in the calendar was to go there first. Um, and I canceled the rest. Oxford is such a special place. Um, so yeah, but then when I got there, um, I realized that this, to sort of connect it to what I think your question is, I realized that all of these kids around me, whether it was at Ole Miss or the rest of the SEC, had grown up like going to the Ledbetter Academy and getting lessons um, and playing in like serious competition, not local Ohio high school competition. Um, and I was the kind of golfer who just played on feel. And that feel and confidence fell apart really fast because I didn't have the concrete foundation that these other kids who came from like the wealthier families or whose families were like, you are going to get a golf scholarship. My family was sort of like, if you think you can, that'd be amazing. That'd be a huge help. It wasn't ever like mission number one for me. Um, So I just think like athleticism and passion got me there, but then I got out of my depth pretty quickly and I didn't know how to, like, there are plenty of field players on tour. I just didn't have the skill set. I didn't have a coach. You know, the coaches that recruited me left after my first year and the one that came in did not understand me. I didn't understand her. She tried to change my entire swing, which for a field player is like not what you do. Um, and it's why I'm a better player now because I don't think about it. I just go out and I hit and that works. But in college competition, when like that's the coach's job, that's her career. You know, like my 19-year-old Andrea's performance on the golf course affects this woman's salary. It is a totally different ball ballgame. Um, I don't think I was ready for it. Yeah, I consider myself a field player as well, as, as you know, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about more more golf in, in depth at some point. That's a little bit of a tease, and it is a good way to, to segue into some other things, but I, I want to have you back and actually talk a little bit more about golf and make it a golf-centric conversation because I think there's a lot of a lot of, of cool things there. And Just one one little thing that I'll let people know, and then we'll, we'll do another episode later in the year about it, is that I, I didn't learn until, and I'm Biden, I'm just so everybody knows, I am joking. I am not a good a good player of the game of golf. Um, but I've thoroughly enjoyed playing with you over the last, you know, 10 or so years as we've been back together. And I, I think it was, like, I don't know, maybe it was like a year ago, two years ago. Uh, one time you and I were like playing a slow round cause we were behind some people and you started dicking around on the tee box and like doing different things. And then you'd be like, Hey, try this. And, and then you, I realized I'm like, Oh no, that's how people who are like really good at golf and like live golf. They, they're not always worried about going to play, around and scoring a certain thing it's like well no i'm just like messing around with my friends and i'm out here playing a game that i really enjoy and start to really understand the feel of a club and a face and a shaft and a ball and and a spin all these different things that like as you and i start to mess around more um i've thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of it because i put so much pressure on myself early playing especially with you not because you applied this pressure but because i did to be like oh i've got to go out and break 100 and i gotta go break 90 and do all these things and now i'm like in the low to mid 90s high 90s and still low hundreds every once in a while um and that's just actually because i've played a lot with you and you and i've just gone out and messed around and had fun and you'll like instead of teaching me to coach me you'll be like hey look at this thing hey let's try this and um that 
I kind of got my version of the experience you had as, as a kid and as a, as a young adult of like being out there with your friends, playing the game and just having fun and goofing off. Yeah. And it's funny. I think as, as much um, flack as I caught from my stepdad for not doing focused practice, I think that it really, until you said that, I guess it hadn't occurred to me, but I, I think that's why I'm a good field player. Hmm. Like I know what the ball feels like off of every single one of my club faces in all kinds of different, you know, types of grass and environments and lofts and lies and angles. And it's like, it's because I was dicking around for so many hours as a kid. Yeah. Um, it's like a second, you know, or a third hand for me. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and just so everybody, I, we'll, we'll do another, like I said, golf episode later in the year, maybe around master's time. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, hint, hint, wink, wink. But um, she said she was mediocre and then she very, quickly and quietly said she lettered for four years. So just, I'm just going to let everybody, everybody can, can think about that how they want. Andrea considers herself a mediocre college golfer. She did in fact letter for four years in the Southeastern conference. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, about your education, education. Um, you actually said something to me recently that I hadn't, maybe I, maybe I had forgotten or, or I hadn't really thought about it, um, because of where I was in life at the time. Um, which was kind of smack dab in the military. I, I hadn't really thought so much about the recession. You mentioned recently you graduated from you graduated from uh, undergrad in 2010, which was like kind of like right in the middle of the of the recession. And you actually chose education for economic reasons because you wanted to be a broadcast journalist, um, but jobs and all that stuff. Can you talk a little bit about what 22, 23 year old Andrea was thinking about in terms of going to grad school and next steps? Yeah, and I want to. This is always a tricky thing to talk about because um, few statements instill more rage in me than those who can't teach and those who can do. Um, So I don't want you or your audience to think that that's why I chose education. It had always kind of been in the back of my mind um, because I had incredible teachers in Dublin. Um, You know, Lori Davis, Laura Mills, Marla Morris. I had amazing coaches, Tim Timmis, Anna Zaccardi, like these people who I still am in touch with and had incredible relationships with. And I remember back when you and I were that age, we talked, like, you're like, I would love to coach high school football and teach history. It's like this wonderful. I had all the same, I had all the same teachers and coaches. We ran in the same, in the same circles. And yeah, my, my ambition was to be a, a history teacher and a high school football coach. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's such a wonderful life. And we grew up in sort of like, you know, Americana suburban Midwest. Um, so it was very much just like a part of, of the fabric that, that raised me. Um, sorry about that calendar notification. It's all good. Riverside does a great job of actually removing that stuff. So we're good. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, let me just close that tab. So anyway, it was like, it was a, it was something I wasn't that far removed, right? I was only four years removed from my senior and high school spring. So it was like still very front of my mind. And I talked to those coaches and teachers all through college. Um, and yes, 2010 was difficult. So I, I was talking to a friend and he said, you know, it's, I think you studied journalism undergrad and that's cool. And you want to go be like, you know, a war journalist and do dangerous shit. And that's awesome. Um, but you should also think about jobs that are always needed. And it's not that journalists aren't though, like a whole other podcast episode would be what journalism has become since I studied it. Um, but he's like, you know, medicine, education, those are fields that the world will always need. You have job security always. And that kind of hit me. And then I called Anna Zaccardi, who was one of my 
softball coaches and I was like, do you like teaching? Like, what is your life like? Uh, we had this long conversation. I was sitting um, somewhere on campus at Ole Miss and she talked me through it. Um, and that conversation was like, yeah, that's someone I trust. She and I are similar. She's this like Italian badass tomboy type. Um, we are very similar in those ways. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And I studied journalism. So like, I'll go the English route. And I applied to, so I applied to teacher corps and I was like, if I get in, that's my answer. If I don't get in, I have to make a plan B, um, highly competitive program. Only like 20 to 25 people get in every year. And from Ole Miss, only one or two. Most of my teacher core cohort classmates were from Harvard, Stanford, Georgetown, St. John's College, um, not St. John's University. I learned about St. John's College. This is like crazy competitive brainiac school. Um, and then two of us from Ole Miss. So I was like, yeah, that's my sign. Yeah. So two things I want to, I want to double click on there. One, um, two, two things I think the audience will benefit from. So one, you did something really smart, which was call somebody you trust and you know, and you asked them real questions. Not like, hey, should I be a teacher? Do you think I would be a good teacher? Do you think I would enjoy it? You asked a really smart, wise and discerning question is, what is your life like? Do you like it? And how do you live and work? And and can you, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about, give me a taste of that. Um, and I think that's something that, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been smarter, wise enough at 22 to do something like that. Um, what made you, what made you do that? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that, I don't know. I almost said, I think I've always done that things like that. And it's probably born out of some level of insecurity. Um, of not just being able to, to make my own decisions though. I've gotten much better at your prompting, um, mostly at it, but I don't know. I would like to think that 21 year old Andrea had some level of wisdom. Like, you know, if you've got, if you've got people in your life who you trust, ask them, you know, it's like our, our friend, Jonathan, it's like, he's somebody that we both talk to a lot because he knows us. Like he thinks, he thinks about us as humans. We have so many deep conversations. He's known us for years. And if you have someone like that in your life, it's like, Hey, what do you think about this situation that came up at work? Or what do you think I should do about this big step? Like if it's someone who knows you really well, I think you'd be remiss not to do it. I, why did I do it? Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's a great question. Yeah. I don't know. I just think more people should do things like that. And, and even then you just now in that answer, you kind of drifted towards the the other version of it, which is, and, and can confirm Jonathan is obviously a, 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 a loyal listener and supporter of the podcast. So he'll hear this and like, we do have those conversations and that's great. But um, not to minimize what I'm asking about, and you don't have to answer it, but I just want to underscore it for the for the listeners, transitioning service members, or anybody who wants to transition a career. Don't ask somebody else what they think you should do. Go ask somebody else what their life is like. What are they doing? What's their day to day? Do they like the what of their job? What's the schedule like? Is that something that like have them paint the picture of what it's like for them for two reasons? One, it'll disarm them. They're not having to answer something you know, like, oh shit, I got the pressure of telling Andrea what I think she should do. It's more of just like, oh cool, somebody wants to know about me. Let me describe my life. And from that, you'll get that very, you know, maybe maybe it was your background as a journalist or, or as a journalism major. And maybe it was that kind of interest of asking questions in a way that would get you the most um, kind of legitimate information. But we don't have to unpack it too too deeply, it's just, but it is something I think is really important for people to consider doing. And then the, the other piece, and we're, we're kind of well, I want to pause for a second because I, I want to think more about the why, why I asked that. It might just be like, you know, 
good, humble upbringings and having parents who told me to lead with questions and, and, you know, utilize the network around me. I don't know, but I will say I did the same thing with some people who worked in sales um, when I was thinking about leaving education. Cause I was like, I, I'm tired of being broke in New York city. I want to make money. My friends who are in sales make a ton of money. Let me ask them what their life is like. And they were all like, don't do it, dude. It's brutal. The grind is brutally like, sure. The money's good, but like, you're not going to, you, we know you, you're not going to like that. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. And then or I'm burying the lead a little bit here, uh, or I guess not burying the opposite of that. Cause we, we know, we know that the, the, you have eventually transitioned out of education and into something else for, for which you're more passionate. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But the other thing that you were doing at the time was taking some opportunities that were directly right in front of you. And you, you weren't entirely clear about what your, your career ambition was. You weren't entirely career, what your like life ambition was. And so you did something really smart and wise. You asked somebody you trust what their life is like doing this thing. You got an answer and then you made a move. You made a move on something that was tangible and that was kind of right in front of you. And, and, maybe you can answer this question. I don't, I don't having known you at the time. And we, we talked about it. I don't remember you being worried about it. You were just like, Oh, cool. This is what I'm going to go do next. Um, did you have any sort of like, I may or may not want to be a teacher for the rest of my life. I may or may not want this to be my career. Or were you just doing the thing that was right in front of you? The latter. I was just doing the thing right in front of me. And I will say something that I think would be really valuable for your audience too. And it came up again when I switched out of education and I just did them again on gut instinct. I didn't, there wasn't any like, you know, pinky in the brain, evil genius like strategy here. But um, I, I wasn't confident that I was going to get into teacher core. I knew how competitive it was. So I looked up the program director, this guy named Ben, um, and asked him to go to coffee. And then we kind of <clears throat> ended up becoming friends. He's who connected me to the guy who got me the job in New York, Todd. Um, and I built a relationship with him, not as like a, you know, a Trojan horse to get into teacher core, though, of course, that was part of it. I just wanted to know, like, hey, what should my what should what should my application look like? What should it say? What kinds of recommendations do you want? And also just like, what's this experience like? And like, we ended up like going to sushi together and we were both into photography. So we'd like drive around the, you know, rural Mississippi Delta and take pictures and like, I don't know if Ben like shoved my application through because of that relationship, but what I do know is my application was the best it could have been because I had I had insider information from him, um, and I ended up having a 4.0 in teacher core and like I wasn't I wasn't some schmuck that shouldn't have been there, um, but I don't know if just like my cold application being sent in would have gotten me into that program. Um, and I think that's a really valuable thing. I told someone that last week who wanted to pick my brain about getting into this industry. I was like. Do what you're doing with me. You hit me up and ask me to have a conversation. Do that a thousand times. Yeah. And build authentic relationships, right? It's not a network. You're not like building. I say this all the time and people, you know, it's not plots on a graph. It's human beings. It's a, it's a robust network of hearts and minds that you're sharing experiences and information with um, to gauge whether or not it's something you actually want to do, whether it's something you can do, whether it's something you should do, and also to then get the valuable intel that that you need in order to succeed if, if you do want to move forward in that path. And I would imagine that uh, it also works out for people who who approach relationships that way, um, that you find another path kind of coming coming out of that. And there's the, the point I'm trying to underscore for, for folks is like, it, it almost doesn't matter where you start. Just start somewhere. If you're interested in doing something different and getting out of, of where you are, whether it's service or whether it's a career, like just move on to the next thing. You, you don't have to mm -hmm. machinate all these different, um, you know, uh, 
signposts and like get there in certain ways and on certain timelines. Just do the work that's right in front of you, see what happens, build relationships with other humans and and kind of move forward. Um, yeah, and the relationship building isn't a substitution for being qualified, though correct. it can help. Like women have, you know, this is studied, women have an issue not applying for jobs if they don't meet every single requirement on the job posting. Men don't do that. Relationships are a great way, in particular for women, to, to sort of like bridge that gap. Um, it doesn't mean you can meet zero requirements and then make a friend with somebody and they're going to give you the job, but it's definitely a, a bridge builder. It's a it's it's something that's going to help you on the way. You might get you might get a job over someone who checks a few more of those boxes because you proved that you were a human being who could have good conversations and is someone that's fun to work with or nice to be around. Um, and I cannot overstate that. No, you cannot. Um jump a little bit around your time in New York city. Um, I want to get to the film and, and your career in, in production and advertising here. Um, but you did something again, like smart in at community roots charter school, which had a, an elementary and a middle school, you kind of jumped around a little bit and filled some holes, uh, filled some gaps. Um, and we're almost like a utility player at, it, it, at the organization. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, why that was the case and kind of like what your mindset was as you got into that environment um, and started operating? Yeah. I mean, the first job that I got, um, I mean, I wasn't certified to teach in New York. Um, teacher certification is state by state unless you have, um, I forget what it's called now, but there's like a national certification similar to like a board certification. Um, so I wasn't certified to teach in New York. Um, so I applied for this elementary school operations jobs. I worked in the office and there were four of us who worked in there. Um, and part of that job, you know, was everything from like helping coordinate busing and field trips. And I was like basically the accounts payable department and I would cover classes if teachers were out. Um, I did recess, I did the after school program. I like really got integrated into the community. Like I still to this day know whole families, right? Parents, grandparents, siblings, cousins. Um, and that was really cool. Um, but then after two years, I was like, I was bored. I mean, there were a lot of days, like I had, I had a master's degree in education. I was, and I was definitely overqualified for that job, but I was willing to take it because I needed a job. And I'm ever grateful for that place because like that place is my New York. Like I lived in New York for 10 years, seven of them were spent there. Um, and actually the movie premiere that's happening on Monday, the middle school basketball girls basketball team is coming. Like I still, that, that part of my life is very important to me still. But after those two years, I was bored. Um, so I decided I was going to Airbnb my apartment illegally. My um, super lived next door and he just either knew and didn't care or I hit it. I don't, it doesn't matter. I Airbnb'd and I left. I quit Community Roots and I was like, I'm going to go travel the world. And I was going to do it for one full year. Um, the Airbnb rates I was getting covered my rent and enough spending money while backpacking. Obviously, I was staying in hostels and not fancy hotels and stuff. And after four months, it, it hit the holidays and I was feeling a bit homesick. And um, someone at Community Roots reached out and they said, hey, one of our, our elementary school science teachers going out on maternity leave, we need a long-term sub. Are you interested in coming home? Uh, and I was like, that's actually great. I'll come home for the holidays. I will make some money and, you know, reset before I go back to wherever I'm going to go next. Um, I was going to go to Southeast Asia. So I'm doing that. And after like 
I don't know, a month or two of it, one day I learned that one of the middle school English teachers quit like the day before Christmas, which in education is like a cardinal sin. Um, zero respect for teachers who quit mid-school year. And our director, Allie Kyle, walked in and um, was like giving me a review of the science lesson I had done and told me about this English teacher thing. And I, she so walked out of the room and I sat there and I thought about it. And the week that she, that, that happened, my co-teacher, Jen, was out. So I was alone in the classroom with K to five science kids and refound myself as a teacher. I hadn't taught since Mississippi. It had been two and a half years. And I was like, oh man, this is like, this is what I'm good at. I love building rapport with kids. So I sat there and I thought for a minute and I walked into Allie and Sarah's office and I was like, hey, um, just a friendly reminder. I am certified in Mississippi in English seven to 12. And they were like, oh, shut the fuck up. I was like, I don't know if we can get it transferred to New York. They're like, no, charter schools can have, you know, a couple of teachers not certified. We have a certain amount. It's like a slightly different rule. They're like, do you want it? And I was like, let's go. So for the next two years, I taught um, English at our middle school, got sick of that, was feeling stuck, switched to operations when our director of operations, Max, left. I was like, I'll take his job, did that, came back to the classroom again, and then ultimately ended up in operations there, which is what helped me learn to like, you know, be a producer essentially. But if I look back at that, I'm like, man, that constant bouncing around every two years was my sign that that wasn't what I was meant to be doing. I loved so many elements of it. Right. But yeah, but the you, writing was on the wall. To totally. But you also, you, you have something that I'm, that I'm envious of and it's, and it's, and it's, uh, like you, you're, you're, you were never in a hurry. You still aren't, you're like not in a hurry. Like you're just, you're just, you're doing the, and, and you're doing the things that are obviously it's, it's a refrain that I have um, for, for the podcast and for the contents. Like you're just doing the work that's right in front of you and seeing what happens. And I, and I guess maybe thinking about it subconsciously, that's maybe part, part of where that came from for me in terms of something I'm trying to remind myself of as, as I put the, the content out for, for other folks to, to read and hear. It's like, you're, and even as I was just listening to you describe that again, like you're, you weren't in a hurry. You're just like, well, let me do this. Well, oh, I'll go do this. Oh, I love this. I forgot. I love this. I'm really good at this. Oh, okay. Let me do it for a little bit. Oh, well, okay. You know, not really into that. So let, let me switch this. Um, is that natural for you? Was there any sort of intention there? What were like, what were you thinking? Were you thinking mid or long-term at all during those years? No. <laughs> now I am starting to a little bit more, but I think if you, even if you look back at my golf career, like I always just had this, um, I don't know. It's like foolish ignorance or probably some arrogance too, where I'm like, yeah, if I just, if I do what's right in front of me, if I do what I know how to do to the best of my ability, like it will be good enough. Yeah. Um, and that proved true. I, like I said, I didn't get a bunch of golf lessons. I didn't grind at it. I had fun doing it and it got me a scholarship. Like how lucky am I, um, that that was my situation. Same thing with teaching, but why I ultimately left teaching, which, you know, is that I didn't feel passionate enough to pour the amount of work into it that the kids and my coworkers deserved. And that is ultimately why I left. Like it was a good living. Um, I made enough money. It was fine. You know, it was good. I, I had a happy life. Um, but I looked up one day and it just sort of like clicked in me. I was like, mm. I look around at my coworkers and these other teachers at Community Roots and what they do and think about and pour themselves into, I am not willing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about that, but first to ground the audience, you and I had gotten back together at this point. Uh, we had gotten married. We'll save everybody all the, the juicy details of, of the, 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 uh, 
whirlwind re-romance, but I was we in Los Angeles. We had won the New York City Middle School Volleyball Championship but, as, yeah. you know, head yeah. coach assistant coach. You were my unpaid yeah. assistant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, we're the Nick Saban of, of um, New York City Middle School Girls Volleyball. Uh, yeah. We built a dynasty and then left. Um, <laughs> that, that one's for Ellen, who I know is listening to this. Um, <laughs> I was in L.A. making short films. We reconnected. Yeah. You connected me with a producer from New York, friend of, of the school, uh, a spouse of a friend at the school. Um, I moved to New York in with you, kept working in restaurants, kept working in branded content, commercial, making some indie films and stuff here and there. We'll talk about the first one you worked on in a second. Um, and then, yeah, we were coaching middle school girls volleyball together. We were doing this this kind of whole 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 thing together. So I was front row seat for all the things that you're, that you're describing, and we had gotten back together. Um, and my first short film in New York, uh, was after I had moved to Brooklyn with you, we realized we needed a larger apartment, um, or wanted a larger apartment rather. And so we were moving in the neighborhood and we had about a week, uh, week or two weeks while we were still paying rent technically, but we had moved into the other, we found out that the super that you had described uh, before was doing some remodeling in there. And so I was like, what a great place to shoot a, a, a horror short film. Like, can we do that? We asked him, he said, that's cool. We checked out the the construction that he was doing and it was super dope and was great for the exact kind of film for the, the screenplay that I had written. And I had asked- the that you wrote? Menacing as fuck. Yeah, yes, menacing as fuck. <laughs> uh, we'll link that film out for people who want to watch it. It's, yeah. it's fun. It's like three minutes. It's, it's, yeah. goofy, but it's fun. Did really well on the festival circuit, but you, I asked you to help and I can't remember actually exactly what it was, but I, I mean, I had asked you to help. I mean, I was, I saw because you were a, a journalism and new media major. I had been encouraging you to get the blog going again. Cause you had written a little bit while you were overseas. Um, you had written a little bit as a teacher in New York city. You wrote about the city so well. And like, I knew you were a writer. I knew you were a creative. I knew that you like were you that. Yeah. And had that ability. And then, and then kind of combined with the operations, I was like, listen, you can kind of combine those two things. It's basically just producing. It's like being a little bit creative and a little bit logistical. Do you want to help on this for a short film? And full disclosure for everybody, like, you know, I, I was nervous to ask you to help for a couple of reasons. One, it was my project. I wrote it. I was directing it. Like I felt, you know, creative ownership of it. And then the other thing is like to ask a, you know, highly qualified individual who you respect on so many levels to be like, do you want to come help me and learn from me is a really fucking weird thing to do. Um, especially when you're married to that person. Um, but it's weird if you're, what are you talking about? It's less weird if you're married. No, it's less weird now, but it was, it was weird. Like kind of like er, we early on dating, weren't we? We weren't married yet. Were we not? Yeah, I guess we were, yeah, we were, yeah, we were, either engaged or engaged to be engaged, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking too much and painting too much of a picture. Do you remember coming on board that short film and helping? What can you, can you just talk about your first experience on set creatively thoughts, feelings, observations go? Yeah. Two things stand out to me about that day. And I don't remember how you asked for the help. I just knew I was down um, and I didn't know what any like set roles even meant. I knew what a director was, right? And I kind of knew what a producer was, but if you, I don't even know if you said PA to me, but like, I wouldn't have cared. Um, that's essentially what I ended up doing because we needed one. Um, and the two things that stand out from that day is, and I've told this story a bunch is like, 
we realized we didn't have the right like audio adapter. Um, and I was like, this is my time to shine because I love, I think what draw, what drew me to production and what drew me to operations in, in a school was that like, I am the problem solver. I am the one who is more stubborn than any of you who will find a solution to this. You know, whether it was like scheduling a date for parent teacher conferences and like promising the directors, the, the co-directors of the school that I'd figure it out and we'd make it work to like helping, you know, Eva put on um, the school plays. Like I was the girl. I'm like I will get my hands dirty. I will stay here till midnight and sweat and do all this stuff. Like I love that shit. So being a PA, good PAs are that way, right? So when we didn't have the, the audio um, adapter, I was like, hold my beer. Took my bike out, biked around to all the, you know, appliance stores and bodegas and eventually found this like random adapter came back in, you know, like victory. I'm here guys. Day is saved. Um, and that felt good. I was like, Oh, this is when I feel alive. Like some insignificant little problem that no one else thought about or cares about. And I didn't either, but now that we know it exists, I got you. Um, I think I love like the appreciation that I get when I do that. I think I love the experience of trying to solve it. Um, more long-term problems, I'm much less interested in thinking about as you've kind of already hit on, but those immediate, like, let me solve this, love it. And then the other thing that I remember, and this is when the monster in me was probably created, is the DP on that film said something to us at one point about how like every single shot has to have camera movement. The camera must be moving in some way. And I was, I sat there and I thought about it and I was like, running through the list of movies and shows in my brain. And I was like, I took a risk and I was like, that's not true. And now I know that that term is called locked off. You can have shots locked off, right? And people might be moving, but even still, you look at Wes Anderson, you might have totally, you know, bored, rigid talent in a locked off frame. The DP was wrong. Um, and I jumped in and I said that, and I can't remember how you reacted or at all, but I just, I love that feeling. Let's call it what it is of being right. Um, and it also made me think like, oh, maybe I have an eye for this. Yeah. Um, one quick aside, when she said, hold my beer, that's literally true because this was a weekend shoot where we had everybody was eating pizza and drinking beer while we were making this thing because it was all people yeah. who worked worked in advertising or in restaurants and worked in real jobs during the week. So we, we made it fun. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't remember that exact exchange, um, but you oh, said- Oh, and the yeah. elevator shot. That oh, shot was my idea and I fucking love that shot. And right. I was like, and that's, again, that's when the monster was created because then anytime you like wouldn't accept my idea, which you didn't have to on future sets, right? It's all, it's all about collaboration. Um, I'd be like, well, no, remember the elevator shot? That was a good one. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, you've said that. You've said that dozens of times for sure. Um, but uh, no, that that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, the elevator shot, but, th and that's exactly what I was, not exactly. I shouldn't say it's exactly what I was hoping for, but I was hoping for that because I knew that and, and again, I wasn't like trying to, oh, oh, oh Andrea is going to be an award-winning director one day. It was just like, I, I wasn't thinking that far ahead either for you. I was actually thinking maybe just a little bit farther out than you, but still pretty close to where we were. I'm like, no, she's she would be really good at this. She would really enjoy this. This is a marriage of all of her experiences and skills. And and I would like her to be a part of this stuff because, you know, on my side of that, like I would come, I was still working restaurants, tending bar and waiting tables at a couple different places. And um, and then working these gigs, uh, you know, when I could and getting shifts covered and all that stuff. And I would come home from these gigs and I would explain things to you. 
And, and, you know, part of it was legitimately kind of educating you on like, Hey, here's my job and here are the things that happen on a set and here's the roles and here's what this means. And I learned this in film school, but I didn't learn that in film school. And like, this is cool. And then there'd be the complaining nights where I'd come home and bitch and moan about, you know, this thing that, that somebody else did wrong and, or this thing that I did wrong or this, you know, talent. Which is important. We yeah. talk about this all the time. It's Ooh. important to vent to a trusted person. So you yeah. don't do it in an inappropriate environment. Yeah. As long as it's yeah. solutions oriented, which is what you yes. guys yeah, yeah, yeah. oriented. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you, you received from me the range of experiences and emotions uh, about at that time, it was mostly branded content. It wasn't like full on commercial content, a couple things here and there. And so I just, I remember thinking like, man, like this is cool. I get to share this thing with her and she's really interested in it. Would love to actually share it with her and have her come on board and help. And, and I think going back to what I said, you know, when I said that it was fucking weird is more of just the kind of uncomfortable bit on my end where like, I knew that you were so capable of it that you would PA once and then you would get it and it would be like, cool. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't because I was, um, I, I was just like, it's just a weird, it's a weird thing to see that in somebody else and then try to get them to get there. And then it happens and you're like, cool. All right, we're here. I was right. Like, you know, whatever, let, let, let's keep it moving. Um, but so that happened. So you worked on that. And then a really cool thing happened where you said, Hey, cause I was out having conversations with people trying to get gigs as a freelancer. And a couple people said to me, Hey man, you just, you should just have your own LLC, your own production company. Um, and I was like, okay. And I got enough of that Intel and I would come home and tell you, I think I told you that enough times that you finally said, well, we should do it. And what, what was your end of that conversation? It's funny. I remember this as being solely my idea. Um, so I'd love to know who you misremember telling you this first. It was the, uh, uh, I can't remember who we, I think we met him through the, the that same branded content producer that maybe. got me my first branded yeah. gig. It was an Australian guy. I can't remember his name. No disrespect. I just can't remember his name. But I remember yeah. I went to that bar uh, in the neighborhood in PLG. And I, I, mm -hmm. I remember coming home and he was like, yeah, I get director's gigs all the time, but it's because I have a production company and I can yeah. staff the whole thing. Okay, fine. Maybe it wasn't um, solely my idea, but I remember we were walking um, home from our favorite restaurant in our neighborhood, Slow Loris. And at least I think in, in, in the movie version of my memory, like we were walking home from that restaurant. It was night. It was kind of cold. And I was like, if you can, if you can put a production company in front of these publishers and agencies and offer all of it, right? Not just you as an individual, as a director or as a producer, or as an AD, but if you're like, Hey, I will crew up this whole thing. I will hire the editors, whatever. Um, and I didn't understand much at that point, but I at least understood that like, it's more appealing to offer the full thing than hope to get hired by one of these, one of these production companies that's being hired by the publisher. Right. Um, so I was like, let's just LLC ourselves. And then you can go out for the full gigs and you can either choose yourself as the director on those or hire somebody else. I can help you in the background. I can, I know enough about doing, you know, accounting from the school. Turns out I did several things very wrong. Um, but at least like we, we got like, you know, checks printed that had greater full productions on the top. I was so proud of them. We had the printer in a, in the spare room at our apartment. Um, that was a fun time, right? It's like, and we got a, we got a decent amount of work really quickly and then it kind of dried up, which we can, yeah. we can talk about too. Yeah. But. Yeah. We, I, that I'm less interested in. So the first couple of, of paid, like full budgeted 
branded projects that we did together with with a publisher, which was used to be the Foundry. It used to be Timing Studios. Now it's the Foundry at Dot Dash Meredith. Um, they had like Sports Illustrated, RIP, People Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, Family yeah. Magazine, Parents Magazine, uh, Southern Living, yada, 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 all those, right? And so I think we did we did a couple. We did one for the Paper and Packaging Board and mm-hmm. Parents Magazine, and we did another one for uh, InStyle and Mila was the brand. Um, and I think those were the, the two big ones that we did together where like I was the director, you were the producer, and then we both collaborated on the creative. And that to me is where I really saw that you were much, even more creative than I thought you were, um, and way less logistical than I thought you were not in that you weren't capable of it, but that it was more of like her interest and her capabilities really lie in bringing the creative production to life. And there's one particular anecdote on the Mila shoot that you probably want to (laughs) highlight as you should. Um, but just talk about the, the experience of actually making that transition as a moonlighter, by the way, for those of us, for those that are listening, she did this as a moonlighter. She was still teaching while helping me, while kind of co-running this company with me and, and making this stuff. So do you just talk about thoughts, feelings, experiences during that time? Yeah. I mean, I used my vacation days from the school, um, to, to do these shoots. We obviously weren't doing commercial shoots, branded shoots on weekends. Right. Um, so that's, I don't know if it's a sacrifice. It was just a strategic choice to make, right? It's like, well, you're going to have to go into work sick maybe, or you're going to have to say no to that thing your friends want to do because you're using your vacation days to do this, which I don't regret for a second. Um, I, you said something about, you know, when we kind of both realized that I'm less logistical and more creative. Um, and I think in my experience, it's a very gendered thing. Like how many times have you heard about like, you know, a married couple partnership and the woman keeps the books. Um, and, and women tend to be good at those things is, is why I think. Um, and I, I'm fine at them. My LinkedIn, I think says like, I'm a classic type B personality, but I do a very convincing impression of a type A, which is something my old coworker at Community Roots, Karen Hawkins said to me. And I was like, oh my God, you just nailed it. Like I can pretend to be organized. Our house is very clean, but like, do not open the closets, right? Like that's, I'm like surface organized. Yes, can confirm. We have like 17 <laughs> junk drawers. <laughs> yeah, people walk in and they're like, oh man, these people are organized. It's like, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, so I think that, and I'm still struggling. Like my, my title still is director and creative producer. And even though this past year, I really only directed. I, I creative produced a couple of smaller shoots, but I directed commercials. I directed this film. Um, and it's still hard for me to convince myself and for me to convince my you know higher ups that like, no, I... I am just a creative, like I'm terrible at wrap binders. I am terrible at actuals. And I like, I think it's okay for me to admit that. But I also think that like, I don't know if you want me to go on this rabbit hole, but like societally, women typically are more like organized, logistical, like, you know, keep track of things on the home front even would be like an analogy um, where the men go out and like do. And of course our society is not in that space anymore, but like, I think the residue of it, I feel um, and have observed, most producers are women, right? Um, And a lot of producers I know, I don't know if that's statistically accurate. In my experience, most producers I know are women. Um, In advertising, anecdotally, I agree with you. I I can confirm from my experience as well that I'm a minority as a producer 
in the advertising world with with other producers. Yeah, yeah mostly, mostly. And maybe women. next year when this podcast gets bigger, you can hire a fact checker um, for situations like this. But obviously, I... hire a woman because a woman is good at <laughs> fact checking. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and it's just hard. It's hard for me to like put myself out there and be like, no, 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 I'm. I'm very creative. Like I, I can run a set, I can run a team and I can generate ideas. Um, especially when I came in, I, I, my into the industry was through production, which I don't regret. Like it needed to be. Yeah. So I want to stop you there. So my, my side of that is, and I didn't think about it in, in gender terms, um, for, for, for whatever reason, but like my journey was Andrea and I had we had mirrored crossing journeys here. She had the the realization and experience that she was more creative, more um, had a stronger perspective on the way that a story should go or the way that a shot should be or whatever. And I was actually with the, you know, the, the self-styled ambition of being a writer director, I was actually uh, realizing that I didn't care so much about those details. I was more interested in the whole thing being really good and, and getting done well and being beautiful or, or being, you know, on brand, if it was a piece of social content, it should be what it is. Um, but I wanted it to get finished. I wanted it to be complete. I wanted it to hit all the boxes that it needed to hit for the client and for the creatives and for everybody, all the stakeholders involved. And then I wanted to wrap it up and move on to the next one. And so for me, I was like, holy shit, I'm a producer and Andrea was like, holy shit, I'm a director. And we had started this company together with the opposite kind of views in mind. And so then we made that switch. And I, I honestly think looking back, that might be part of why some of the work dried up because we were like confused about how, how to move forward and what to do. And we were green in the industry. I was still working in restaurants. You were still working at the school. We were kind of trying to figure it out. Um, well, that and I think this is probably a really important thing to talk about. And my guess would be that veterans run into this a lot because you guys are so good at just saying exactly what needs to be said. But we were told by a friend um, and who, you know, where the where the work stream was coming from, that um, I was a bitch to work with and that, you know, we maybe even we I don't remember the specifics at this point, but like we weren't good to work with. Um, and that hurt so bad. Right. And like that. So I had not gotten that feedback before. Um, and, you know, it essentially ended the friendship, which I have regrets about and like miss them and all that stuff. But like what I realized being a few years removed is that like I have still yet to get that feedback ever again. And in fact, get the opposite feedback. Um, the reason I've, I was able to break into this industry was because I'm like an adult in the room. I was told by one boss and, you know, easy to talk to and kind to work with and, so, you know, one person telling you something that doesn't square with your, your vision of yourself is not enough to derail you. If you hear it multiple times, of course, you need to consider that feedback. But like it could have very easily derailed us yep. and like uh, my career in particular. You were already in the industry, but like I switched to full time in advertising after that just out of like sheer stubbornness, yep. kind of like, fuck you, let me show you. And I have, I have shown that person, but like. Man, that could have been really bad. That could have been like, oh man, I don't have. Maybe I'm not good at this. Maybe, maybe I don't know um, how I come across. And it turns out, like, I, I was in touch with with how I come across. That was just one person's opinion, um, and it was important was, for me to sort of like let that go. And that was one person speaking on behalf of other people that you didn't get a chance to talk to the other people. Mm -hmm. Still to this day, we haven't had a chance to talk to the other stakeholders on those projects, and. Um, and we don't have to go into into too much detail on all of that. Um, although no, I, I think the lesson I was important. 
Yeah. And the, and the lesson there is, is I think you hit the nail on the head and just to reiterate is, um, be aware and observe the sample size of yep. the feedback that you're getting. I think particularly in the military community and then the veteran community, as we transition out, um, that stereotype exists. And I, I don't think by and large, it's true. I think by and large, just most people who are assertive are assertive. And most people who can't receive assertion probably need to check themselves a little bit. Um, and I'm biased because you and I are the same way in that way. Um, but I, I do think by and large, it's, it's a truism. So I would encourage the veteran community or, or anybody transitioning from sports and the military into something more corporate or creative or, or whatever. Um, just be aware of the sample size from the feedback that you're getting. Don't ignore feedback um, and don't go all in on every piece of feedback. Just get enough feedback, observe the sample size, and then make some determinations from there. I think that's one mistake you and I made at that time together. We, we co-made this mistake where we were like, I mean, we were like, we went so deep into that feedback. We were trying to like parse it out and figure out. And we're like, and now I look back on obviously the experience I give people as a producer, the experience you've given people as a producer and a director. And it's just, we just, we just know it's, we know it's not true. We have gotten feedback that we have actioned because we get good feedback from people, but it's from people that we trust and work with regularly. Um, and that sample size is there. Um, so one thing before we bridge to, to your, to your, your move uh, fully into advertising and production you said something uh, that you learned on these sets that harkens back to something you said that you were really good at as a teacher. Um, connecting with people and meeting them where they are and and moving that group forward together. So yes, you weren't great at lesson planning and yes, you weren't great at or interested in teaching, right? And like, and, and doing the, the tactical work of a teacher but you were great at and thoroughly enjoyed working with students and moving them forward through um, their school year or their days and their months and their year. And then same thing on set. I think you probably started to learn that where you're like, well, I'm, I'm a, I'm a leader in this environment and I can move everybody forward. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of times you've had to endure me excitedly or frustratedly telling you how similar uh, directing and teaching are, um, I'm sorry for, but it's just so true. I mean, and even even creative producing, producing probably too, but creative producers, you know, are a little bit different, like creative producers in the agency world typically, um, for those who don't know, are the people who are responsible for getting, you know, the copywriters, the designers, the ACDs, the creative directors to, to, to ideate and to make the thing that the client's asking for right? Like creative producers aren't typically the ones doing a ton of logistics in the agency world. Um, but it is our job to like get a team to work well together towards the common goal, which is of course the same thing that directors do more tangibly on a set. Um, and just like I was in the classroom and my old brilliant co-teacher Liliana probably wanted to kill me so many times, but I was more interested in like keeping the mood light and you know, having sidebar conversations and going on tangents in the, in the event we were having like a whole class lesson, um, and I found that that really helped me build rapport. So you know, if we're between setups on set, um, or if I notice that talent is feeling awkward, like I'll just like you know, kind of schedule be damned. We'll make it up. I'd rather just ha pause and have a silly conversation or even a deep conversation. You, you and I both love a deep conversation, right? Like I'll go there with people too. Um, and it's not necessarily intentional. It's just kind of like my way, 
But I would say that for people who are more, who are more just like, you know, put your head down, do the work and, you know, don't look, you know, have you have your blinders on. I don't find that to be particularly like enjoyable um, and productive. I think that there's always room for some like human connection and rapport building. Um, and I, that probably sounds like painfully cliche, but it's just, it's what's helped me advance in the industry. Like certain departments on set are known for being very curmudgeonly um, and being very like, I want to get out of here as early as possible. I'm not one to hit overtime. I don't want to, you know, that'll, that'll get you hated really fast, but we're here for a full day of work. We don't have to just be ball to the wall the whole day. We can like get to know each other. And the people who I've gotten to know on sets, we work together more and more and more. You know, it's like, I, I'll hire the same people over and over again. Of course they have to be talented and good at what they do, but that is like, honestly, secondary because a lot of people have the hard skills. So many people can develop hard skills. The soft ones are the ones that keep me hiring certain people over and over again. I can replace someone who can put up a light like it's nothing, which is not to say that people who put up lights don't have a skill set. I don't have that skill set. It is very impressive when you see someone light a scene and they can change the mood. It's just like, it's, it's a beautiful process to watch, but a lot of people can do it. A lot of people can direct, right? You have to be enjoyable to be around. I have nothing to add. <laughs> and better in listening to this should rewind it 45 seconds and listen to it again. Yeah. Um, I don't have many of the director hard skills. You know, I just kind of got comfortable. Like, well, yeah, I, mean, that's I want this focal length, like what I can tell someone with the hard skills, like I want this scene to feel like this. And then I go and I focus on directing talent and building rapport with talent so that their performance comes across. And I leave the expertise, the hard skill stuff to the people who have those skills. It's my job to create a good vibe on the set. And I think that that translates to a lot of careers. It's not just directing. No, I mean, that's, I mean, Christopher Nolan is, is uh, just widely known for, <clears throat> for saying that, that he's not that good at individual things on a film. He's just elite at bringing all of the department heads together and allowing them to shine. And he's the one yeah. who kind of puts those puzzle pieces together, um, which I, th I think is a really, a really smart way to look at it. And to your point, uh, for the filmmakers out there who have ambition to be a director and, and want to go direct, heed that advice very specifically for everybody else who wants to do something a little bit different in whatever career path. Um, understand that that is a great uh, heuristic for, for anything. Like you're working with a team. If you're the leader of that team, it's your job to make sure that everybody else can do their job to the best of their ability. And you just put the finishing touches on it. That's it. That's all you need to do. And if you're not, if you're still leading from the middle of the organization to the bottom of the organization, same thing. Make yourself, like you said, make yourself somebody people want to work with, somebody who solves problems, and somebody who makes everybody else's job easier. Um, I need to email John and tell him that we're running late again because I don't want to stop this no, conversation. You said 10.30. I know. We have 10 minutes and we haven't even talked about Madwell yet. <laughs> uh, let me check our calendar here real quick. We can do it. Yeah. Okay. So you, um, no big deal. You were 30 pregnant and you had quit the school cause you had to based on the school calendar. Um, I had not yet secured a, a job in advertising or production yet. Oh yeah. What did that that's, that's a big time. I actually let the school know earlier than most teachers do. I think I let them know in February. Um, but it was just, that was just because of my loyalty to them. 
And what I said earlier, cardinal sin is, you know, quitting mid-year, leaving kids uncared for, um, untaught. So I wanted Community Roots to have as much of a runway as possible to replace me. I offered to help interview, of course. They didn't need that from me. I think I interviewed a few people with them, but um, I just wanted to do right by them. That wasn't like, you know, some altruism. It wasn't, it was just like, those are, those were my people. And I cared a lot about that place. And I also knew selfishly um, that if I didn't rip that bandaid off, I would just coast um, and maybe stay there another year. So yeah, in February um, of, what would it have been 2019? Yeah. Of 2019, 20, yeah, 2019. Yep. Um, I let them know and started applying, you know, during the workday there, it's a pretty slow time in a school, right? You're not like quite a spring break yet. And then we had built pretty good systems. They were kind of running themselves. Um, so I had a lot of time during my workday there, sorry, Aaron, um, to apply for other jobs and just like never heard back. Like I was saying uh, earlier at the top of this podcast, like sending those cold applications through LinkedIn, like you are not getting a job that way, guys. (laughs) I can speak from experience. I've heard other people talk about it. Um, So I, we were sitting at a bar in Flatbush, Brooklyn one day and you were like, look at this job. And it was a creative producer job at Madwell, um, which is a great agency um, based out of Bushwick, Brooklyn and Denver, Colorado. And I read the job description and I was not fully qualified. I think they wanted like, four plus years of experience. And I, if I were to like, you know, include indie films, I maybe had two soft three. Um, but I had director of operations on my resume and, and I wrote a really cool cover letter that we sat at the bar and and wrote. Um, and my cover letter was a screenplay basically of my experience applying for the job, um, where it included you sending it to me. And then they have this really cool homepage Madwell does. And the screenplay had me like, you know, getting sucked into their homepage and suddenly I'm in the interview and I'm telling them things about myself through this, like make believe sort of like fantasy feeling dream state feeling interview. Um, and that wasn't an original, like the, the idea was original in that like you and I kind of came up with that together, but they asked for a unique cover letter. Cause like they're that kind of creative, creative agency, like, Cover letters are bullshit, but they were like, if we're going to, if you're going to have to write them, make it cool. So I think I got like an email back from them and got a couple interviews out of it, went into the office and they just kind of never got back. I was not, like I said, I wasn't qualified um, for that role. So, you know, fast forward a few months now it's springtime. Um, I don't think I was pregnant yet, but I was starting to feel the pressure of not having a job lined up, uh, knowing my last paycheck would be June um, from the school. And I, we were thinking about moving to LA, I think. Oh yeah. Shit. We had, yeah, we had a little bit more time than I thought. Cause you were, I was working at an agency. Yeah. Um, I was working at an agency basically full time. I was like contracting every quarter. I would just get renewed every quarter. So like, I was in pretty good shape yep. working with NASCAR and all that stuff at the time, draft line, all that cool stuff. Yeah. You were going to get paid through June. Um, and, and yeah, that's about the time I think you told me you were pregnant and, um, we were thinking about moving to LA because I mean, what's cool about pre, pre-pandemic stuff for those that don't know is um, producing was like like remote job before it was remote job. So like I was able to kind of 
probably maybe go to LA and still work with this production company yeah. agency that I was working with or work for multiple ones and kind of be bi-coastal and work in New Orleans and Chicago and all these other hubs for it and stuff too. So we were really thinking about living that kind of life um, yeah. and then just maybe getting a reset, you know, and we had, we had friends out in LA. Obviously I had gotten my, my start in the industry out in LA. So we had friends out there, production friends, creative friends, like people who were plugged in and um, it was a, it was a viable option for us. Yeah. So what I did was the head of production at Madwell, uh, Sandy Sherman, I hadn't heard back from them. I had sent, you know, your standard, like every week or two weeks follow up, Hey, any movement, the job was still posted. Um, but I, and this is a refrain with me, right. And like kind of how I've moved through jobs and, and, and careers and life. I just asked Sandy to go to coffee with me. Um, and I, I wanted to ask her about LA, you know? Um, and it's funny. I don't know if you remember this, but we, this was during the part of our life when we partied a lot. Um, what? So I ended up being like late to this coffee meeting because I mistimed the trains and I had to get an Uber and Uber during rush hour in New York. Like I walked into this coffee shop 10 minutes late and she's like, probably, who is this schmuck? You know, wearing last night's makeup and a leather jacket, just like typical freaking. There's an old anecdote about uh, the actor who uh, who got, the Friday night lights, uh, coach Eric Taylor, the TV show who got the job. Mm -hmm. He rolled in, he rolled in, uh, late to the interview with Peter Berg, the director. And, uh, he had been on a bachelor party the weekend yeah. before smoking cigars, drinking whiskey with his buddy. So he just kind of like rolled in and Peter Berg was like, that's coach Eric Taylor. Right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure Sandy was as impressed or if she even picked up on it. Uh, she probably did. She's a super smart woman. Um, but I was like, Hey, I'm thinking about LA. Um, I haven't, you know, heard back from Madwell and I get it. I don't, it's fine. I would just woman to, I think the email I sent her to request the coffee is I said like, you know, woman to woman, I'd love some advice. I'm trying to break into the industry. And she was like, she told me even in her response, like she was so flattered by that to be asked to give advice to somebody, um, which I thought was weird. Like she was a head of production. She was, you know, a boss bitch. I'm like, what do you mean you're flat? People but probably ask for advice all the time, but I don't think they do. This is why I tell people to build relationships with other human beings because most people fucking don't. Yeah. You build a relationship with a human being and meet them heart to heart, mind to mind. Like your read on that is she said she was impressed. She was probably just fucking happy to be seen. Like yeah. you saw her as a human who could offer another human experience to you. And yeah. she probably doesn't get that ever. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a pretty short coffee date. I want to say it was like 30 minutes because I was late and she had meetings or whatever. Um, but we had a conversation and she was like, do not move to LA. Like we just moved here from there. Um, I don't want to offend any listeners, but she's just like, fuck LA. Um, and in many ways, I agree. I love LA for a lot of reasons, but it's not my work vibe in this industry. This isn't um, an LA audience. You'll be fine. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, it's true. It feels very different to work out there um, than it does on the East Coast or in the Midwest or even in the South. Um, and it's not my vibe. So she maybe sensed that and she was like, no, don't do that. Um, and then like, I don't know how long it was a few days, a week later, I got an email from the HR team at Madwell. Cause basically what had happened was Sandy went back and she was like, Hey, I met like an adult for coffee last week. You know, she had a whole career before this. Um, Madwell is a cool place because they, and, and their, their founder and CEO, Chris Soika had around this time written an article about how he valued people from diverse backgrounds coming in. He didn't want the traditional, I've climbed the ladder in advertising. I started as a junior copywriter and then blah, 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 blah. He didn't want that. Um, I don't think I would have gotten a job anywhere else. Like, I don't know many places that feel that way, but they were like, oh, teacher turned operations. 
she's directed some stuff. They they thought that our company was like more of a big deal than it was because Sandy at one point she was like, "You've owned your own company," and I was like, "LOL, yeah, kinda. We have an LLC." Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what it was like. And I got that feedback from Bridget too, who became my direct supervisor there. She told me a couple of times she was like, "We just love having you on the team because like you're an adult. Yeah. <laughs> we have so many like young producers who come in, but you had a whole damn career." I'm like, "Yeah, I guess." Yeah, it's a great place. I have since freelance. Veterans, right? And- veterans have done a whole damn thing before they're transitioning. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. valuable. Exactly. And that's and that's where, you know, that, that's where diversity has just a ton of, of value where people from diverse backgrounds, diverse experiences bring a diverse set of skills and experiences to bear um, on on an organization or on a project within an organization, whatever it is. And um, yeah, obviously, I've I've worked there, I've freelanced there last year, and, and worked with the team, and can confirm that they do deliver on that. You've, you're you're working with a bunch of different people who have a bunch of different experiences within the industry to come together and and uh, and and launch campaigns, which is super cool. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spend too. I don't want to dismiss your time at Madwell, and I don't want to um, run through it too quickly, but you had a great experience and learned the ropes of of how the advertising side of the industry works there. But you also then came to another realization that, yeah, like this is a great opportunity to produce, but I really want to direct. Um, how did that unfold? Not yet. Not okay. yet when I left. I just wanted to work on different types of content. Hmm. Uh, Madwell does these like crazy creative. I was working on like $2 million photo shoots with these like beautiful set builds and like cool, cool stuff. Um, but I realized that I like video. Um and that was what I wanted my focus to be. And I wasn't getting the opportunities to do video there. It was going to other producers. I voiced it several times. I even, I don't know if I gave like a hardcore ultimatum, but I was like, hey, if if the next video project comes in and it goes to somebody else again, like I'm going to have to look elsewhere. Had that conversation with Bridget and Sandy. They got it. It wasn't totally up to them. And then it happened. Sure enough, another producer who like, raised her hand at the last minute was my understanding at the time. She's like, oh, I want to try video. And they're like, oh, sure. Even though I had spent the last six months being like, please, please, please. It just wasn't, it wasn't set up in that way. I wasn't an experienced enough producer for the account that I was on. Huge account. And they wanted these like, you know, 20 year grizzled vets with it. Like they, they checked that, right? I wasn't that. Um, so I made the choice to have to leave. Um, still have a great relationship with them. They totally understood, you know, Chris and I, on my last photo shoot was in LA. We had dinner my last night as an employee of the company. And he was like, I know we don't have the kind of work that you want to do. I, I, I plan to have it in two years and let's talk. Um, which was a nice thing to be told, right? Um, there were no hard feelings. It was an amicable separation. And I applied to one job. Um, I think it was an, also a job that you found for me, which is funny. Yeah, uh, applied to that. Yeah. Um, and, and I wasn't going to leave unless I got that job because I loved Madwell. Um, and they gave me my break into the industry, but I got the job at Malka. And in my interview, this was the crazy difference maker in my interview, Brian Egan was like, Hey, I saw that you directed some indie stuff and some, maybe I don't think I directed any branded content stuff. He's like, do you have an interest in directing? And I was like, yeah. Um, he goes like, you would do that here. And I was like, is this a trick question? Like most places want you to have 10 years in, right? They want you to like have climbed the ladder the traditional way. And here was this, you know, future supervisor of mine saying like, no, you can, you can direct stuff. And I was like, okay. Um, and they tried to put me, they tried to make me the supervisor, sorry, a senior producer on one of their big accounts, the Twitch account. And they offered me more money um, than the job I ended up taking. They're like, you can make this amount of money 
if you will be on this one account being a senior producer, or you can make this amount of money being on the enterprise accounts and get to do these like branded documentary type things. Um, and I told them I wanted the less, the lesser paying job. And they're like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I just came from a place where I was on one account. I'm not interested in that kind of content. I did not switch careers at 30 to do anything, but exactly what I want to be doing. Like I can go get another agency producer job. that's going to pay more than what you're offering me and be on the same account and do, you know, not be on set and stuff. I want the job where I can be in the field. I will take less money. And they were like, you might be fucking crazy, but okay. Um, and I, that was the best decision I've ever made. Aside from like marrying you and switching into this, into this industry, like that was that I look back at that decision and I'm like, man, I bet on myself. I was like, I'm going to take less money because I now finally know what I want to be doing at whatever I was by then, 33, 32. It's like, I finally figured out what I love doing. Money is not going to be the driver of it. It was not a big difference. It was like a 10,000, no, it was a $20,000 difference annually in salary. I was like, man, that's worth it all day long. Um, so they started putting me on these like small branded documentaries where I was essentially a field producer. Um, I was creative producing on the back end and I was like the person in the field who dealt with talent, camera and client. And I poured myself into making those better than what Malka had put out before. They're pretty small budgets. Clients on those types of things are pretty conservative. You know, they're oftentimes internal videos or B2B videos, but I was like, nope. Like if I'm going to get bigger and bigger opportunities, I need to hire really good DPs who are going to help me grow. And I'm going to shot list this and direct my ass off. Even if no one looks at me as the director of this, I'm going to look at myself as the director. And then I was putting out these, these, you know, documentary style pieces for, you know, big corporations that wasn't their broadcast spots. It wasn't their big time spots. Right. But like Amazon and um, who else? Uh, EY and like all these, all these big companies and, you know, like my sales team, my accounts team and the clients were like, wow, this is, this is really elevated. I'm like, yeah, you can do that for the same amount of money. You just have to hire the right people and like be committed enough. So enough of those kind of got me in the conversation where now my sales team, my accounts team is like, oh, we can put Dre forward for this bigger project and this bigger project. And it just kind of like built from there to the point where I got a feature documentary opportunity kind of dropped in my lap. Um, and I know that I kind of, I've been talking for a minute, but told that part of it pretty quickly. Like it was a solid two, two and a half years of just elevating everything I did a little bit more than what people expected that got me here. Yeah. Um, okay. So tell it, we've got, we've got about five minutes left. Tell us uh, how the film came together kind of as, as best you can and, and not to be dismissive of the film as a part of your story, but obviously this podcast is focused primarily on your journey and the transitions yeah. within it. Um, but yeah, tease us up a little bit. This episode is going to go live the same day that the film, uh, sorry, the day before the film's gonna be live on Wednesday, right? Yep. Yeah. So this will go live the day before. Um, so what can people look forward to? What was your experience like? How did you, how did you action everything you just said very beautifully and succinctly? How did you action those things for your first feature um, with superstar talent and big, big stakeholders? Yep. So the film is called Shattered Glass, a WNBPA story. The PA is the Players Association um, for the women of the W. And I got connected to Terry Jackson, who, sorry, Terry Carmichael Jackson, who is uh, the executive director of the PA. And we were talking one day and she was just telling me all these beautiful stories. Like she knows there are 144 players in that league 
and she knows a lot about all of them. So we were just chatting. Um, Jessica McCourt, who's my coworker, had a relationship with her, and she was like, "I want you to meet Dre." So we're, the three of us, the three of us women, are chatting. And Terry's telling me these stories, and I was like, "This has to be a documentary." And again, kind of like with Sandy, Terry was like floored. She was like, "You want to make a film about this?" And I was like, "Yeah. Like, why wouldn't? Why wouldn't I?" I'm a, you know, for me, and she didn't know this. Maybe she did by then. But like, female athlete journalism major. Um, I want to tell powerful female stories, sports stories specifically. Like, what do you mean? Like, of course I want to make that film. And she goes, you can make a documentary. And my dumb ass was like, of course I can make a documentary. Like <laughs> I had never made anything longer than 12 minutes. And now I'm looking at making a feature. Um, so she sort of said like, okay, like whatever you need from me. And Jess was like, I'll get it funded. And sure, sure, sure enough, she did. And then it was just on me to like, you know, build the story and build rapport with these women um, and figure out, you know, it's like, it's pretty lucky to have the opportunity of like, here are, here's an opportunity to make a film. I'll make sure you get the talent, you know, the subjects of your film. All Someone else will make sure it gets funded. All you have to do is come up with a story. Um, and that was a lot of pressure. You know, like I had coworkers and friends, you know, Mitch Hooper at Malka, he and I had several early brainstorm sessions. You and I and Gareth and Ryan stayed up late at our house one night brainstorming. Many of those ideas made it into the film. Like I, in many ways we had not nearly enough people on this film, but like my own personal circle of trusted voices, their thumbprints are all over this film, um, which is pretty cool. Otherwise I don't think it would have gotten done. Um, and yeah, now I can say that I directed a feature length documentary. Um, it is by no means perfect. It is by no means what I initially set out to make, but I think that that's art. I think that things evolve. Um, and it's definitely better than it had any right to be given how little I knew about this process. Yeah. Relationships, <clears throat> determination, stubbornness. Stubborn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Get you far. Get stubborn. Far. Stubborn. It's like, it's like a stubborn, we need to think of like a, make up a word that's a cross between ignorance and arrogance. Um, cause it's like stubborn ignorance and arrogance at the same time. Yeah. We just take those back, you know, like whatever. It's just like, in this case, the cocktails, the cocktails, it's a good cocktail. Yeah. Um, where can folks find you? Where can folks find the film? Uh, where do you want to drive traffic, um, for your director portfolio? Oh boy. Um, my website is just my full name.com. AndreaBusilla.com. Instagram is the same. Um, and the film will be on Tubi. Um, which is a free app. One thing I was nervous about was a barrier for entry uh, for people to watch, but then I found out Tubi is free. So all you have to do is download it um, and you can watch the film for free. Yeah, uh, that's cool. I was texting with Kira yesterday because she's a college athlete as well. She and mm -hmm. I worked together at another agency and I was like, oh, you'll love this film. She's like, I don't have Tubi. And I was like, all right, I'll find out how to get it to you. But now it's we free. know. Um, Kira, it's on Tubi and it's free to download. And <laughs> you're an avatar for everybody else. Go download Tubi, go watch the film. Um, I actually, I think I've maybe seen picture lock maybe, or like maybe right before picture lock, but I haven't seen it with finishing. I haven't seen everything. So, um, I'm very excited to, uh, to be your arm candy at the premiere, uh, last night for those listening on Tuesday. And, um, uh, yeah, I love you. I'm proud of you. And, uh, I'm excited to see where this takes you. Love you too. <laughs>